You guys sounded great. Go ahead and have a seat. Let me put this over here. Hey, good morning, everyone. Exactly. Good morning. <laughs> Uman's here. Um, we have a lot of people out of town today. The Wilsons are still in the Baltics. Jen and the girls and Lauren are in Chicago. The Tabers are in Boston. But we can still have lots of energy for today. Because the Word of God is going to be preached. Here we go. Hopefully it can hit our hearts. We are continuing this series. And we are... um, This is part five. Part five. The title of this lesson is Two Groups One. And we're looking at the last part of chapter two and the first part of chapter three. This is kind of the biggest chunk of the book that we're going to look at uh, today. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read it, the whole thing. Then we're going to break it down. I'm actually going to kind of work backwards through it. But it's going to then bring us to communion. So let's read, all right? Hang in there with me through all of this. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 11, we're going to go all the way to 3.13. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs 
together with Israel. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, the grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. That's a lot. There's a lot there. The main thrust of this, we could, I mean, we're, we're going to look into it, but there's a lot we could pull apart, like, verse by verse. There's one main point that Paul is trying to make. It's that you had, the, you had the Jews, you had the Gentiles, and they had been separate. They had been, the Gentiles had been excluded. They did not belong in the family of God until the cross. And now these two groups can become one. Guys, I'm just, I hope you know that to me, this is a message that is still extremely important today. It is, for some reason, it's part of our DNA as human beings to divide ourselves, to separate ourselves, to segregate ourselves, to stick with what we know, group with the people that are comfortable with us, shun the people that are different than us. And Paul is saying, this is one of the reasons for the cross was that Jesus was able to die and bring two groups together and remove that dividing wall of hostility. And so, we're going to jump into this. I asked a couple weeks ago, I was like, man, there's two, there's two questions that I think Ephesians does a really good job. And the funny thing is, we, kinda, we, we tend to gloss over the first one. I said, the, the, one of the main questions we struggle with as people is, who am I? And then the second one was, how, what's my path forward? Like, what do I do? And I want to talk about this first one, because we're, we're going to wrap up chapter 3 next week. And, we, and I haven't really addressed this, and I, and I want to. The verse we just read, you might be like, I don't really, I don't really see that in there. And yet, it's all throughout there. The whole first half, when we're not going to go back and redo it, the whole first half of Ephesians, Paul is constantly reminding the Christians who they are. I just want to look, just in the verse we read, just in those few verses, this is all the, the language that Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to see about themselves. This is just pulled out of the scriptures that we just read. And we are all Gentiles. So this specifically applies to us. Because none of us are first century Jewish Christians. You say, you were distant, but now you're close. You were hostile, now you have peace. 
You didn't have access, now you have access. You were foreigners, now you're fellow citizens. Sharers in the promise. Members. Heirs. You're part of a holy temple. And so, it, it might not be like Paul is like, okay, listen, you, let me tell you who you are, and please be confident in this. It's just infused throughout everything he says for the whole first three chapters of Ephesians. It's everywhere. And I would encourage you, this list, but go back and just read the beginning of of Ephesians and pull out all of these types of descriptions. Like, who is Paul trying to get me to see I am this in Christ? It's beautiful. Now, I want to contrast this with what Jesus says in the Gospels. Because Jesus, if you just pull out the scriptures where Jesus is telling people who they are, Sometimes it's not so good. Because <laughs> sometimes he's like, you are an accursed brood, you pit of vipers. Like he goes after people. You are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Like he does go after people. But I pulled out the positive ones. These are the you are's of Jesus. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now the third one might be weird, but in context it's great. People, he's like, he's like hey, God can take care of the birds And you're much more valuable than them. Jesus says you are set free. You are always with me. You are witnesses. You are in me. You are clean. You are my branches. You are my friends. Like those are awesome. That's beautiful. I'm just going to be really real with you guys. We don't, we don't, believe those. And sometimes we might believe them intellectually, but we don't live as though we believe them. Why? Because it's hard. It's very hard to live in that confidence that Paul was talking about. It's very hard to approach the throne of grace with confidence. When everything around us is trying to steal our security and make us feel like we're less than and Jesus is like totally trying to heap encouragement on us. And we sang that song for a reason. Because here's my question for you. Do I believe I am who God says I am? And we all just sang it. I am who you say I am. Man, it's easy to sing those songs and then live the rest of the week like, Like, we don't believe it. Do I believe that the way that Paul is describing the relationship with God that the Ephesians had, do I I hold that in my heart so dearly that I can move forward living that out? And we don't have time to, like, jump into each one. You could do a sermon on every single one of those. Like, what does that mean for you, and how does that look? All I want to say is, the first part of Ephesians is beautiful because Paul is trying to get this church that has its issues and is very divided at times and they're struggling to figure out how do we get along. And some of them are feeling like stepchildren in the family of God. The Gentiles were struggling with feeling like, well, we don't really belong here. Not like them. They are are legitimate children of God. I am not. I'm a second-class Christian citizen 
in this church. And Paul was like, that is not true. You are not. You are an heir. And so we're going to get into, as we move on in Ephesians, we're going to get into like a lot of practicals. Like do this, don't do this, live like this, don't live like this. But all of that can just come off like a bunch of rules if we don't believe I really am this most precious child and I have all the benefits of sonship in Christ. Amen? All right. I'm going to start at the end of that passage and I want to talk about this idea of through the church. Because Paul has this, this phrase that is so deep. A lot of times when I, when I sh- talk about this phrase, I'm just like, I don't know what it means. None of us do, really. Here's what he says. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. His intent, God, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a beautiful sentence that is thick with theological meaning. And when you really start peeling back, like, what is he saying? Like, man, the theologians and the Bible scholars, when when they dig into this, they're like, I mean, it seems to say what it says. Well, what is that? On the most basic understanding of this verse, it's that there is, in the spiritual realm, there are beings, created beings, and sometimes we can be super simplistic and just call them angels or demons if they're good or bad. But there are spiritual beings, he calls them rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And God is trying to teach them a lesson by having them watch the way Christians live. That those rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm are going to learn about the wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom, which we're going to talk about in a bit, the manifold wisdom of God. They're going to learn that by watching you. And not you individually, you plural you collectively, and us, and globally, and across time, is that this experiment called the church is going to teach things to heavenly beings. And that's why I'm like, I don't know what that means, guys. Like, that's crazy. I don't want that kind of pressure. I don't even like it if, like, someone's like, hey, you need to be a good example. Like, when I was the big brother as a kid, I was the big brother, so my parents would be like, hey, your brothers are watching you. You need to be a good example. I was like, I didn't ask for that. Don't put that kind of pressure on me. Same exact thing. Like, wait, what? Angels and demons and various other spiritual beings are going to be watching me and learning about God through me? I didn't ask for that. I don't want that kind of pressure. Now, you, there are lots of explanations to why that's not the case. It means something else, and I, I've read all of those. But man, all the theologians come back to, yep, that's what it says. I don't know, but that's what what it says. 
I want to talk about the, the manifold wisdom. Manifold is not a, a word we really use, unless you're talking about like uh, an engine manifold or in like hydraulics or anything like that. But manifold really just means like uh, multiple or multiplying or diverse, numerous, um, multitudinous was a word I liked, which is pretty cool. Varied, assorted, sundry, abundant. So the Greek word, this is the only place in the entire Bible that this Greek word is used. And it literally, like at the simplest literal definition is like multicolored. But not quite multicolored, but like variegated. Like, you know, like if you were doing a faux finish on a wall, there'd be shades like brighter and darker. That's, that's, the, that's what this word means. And it begs the question, why, why that word? Like, what is it about God's wisdom that is multicolored? And there's a lot of speculation around that. The, my favorite is that it's like, man, there's, there's a part of God's wisdom for every single situation, for every single season of your life. Sometimes you're happy, God's wisdom applies to you in there. There's a part of God's wisdom that can, can empathize with you, that is there with you. Sometimes you're angry, you're enraged, God's wisdom is there with you too. And it's not like God's wisdom is like one solid standard that you have to attain to. It's that God's wisdom covers the spectrum and we can find a place for ourselves. Wherever we are at, there's a place for you in God's wisdom. But he's saying that it's this type of wisdom, this like multitudinous wisdom, that is so amazing that the way God is going to teach spiritual beings about it is by watching people love him. It's crazy, guys. Here's what um, John Piper, has a great quote from it. There isn't anything greater that can be said of the global church of Christ than that Christ died so that she would be the display of God's infinite wisdom. This verse hints at like the pinnacle purpose of the church. That we as a a body have a calling that is even higher than we can fathom. And you might be like, that's awesome, but what does that mean for me today? Like, how can that make me a better Christian now? And the the rough answer is, I don't know. We're all figuring this out. There's no one that's going to be like, this is how, you know, you go out and and live this scripture out, ideally. But, But I do think it's important to ask us this. Like, do I see... That God has a, a purpose for the church outside of just getting together. Like, God's purpose for this church is not, like, keep them busy for an hour and a half on Sunday, or they'll go crazy. Give them a place to check in, or they'll start sinning again. That's, that's so simplistic and bad. There is a greater purpose and plan for God's church, globally. 
But we get so wrapped up in my life, here, now, my to-dos. This is what I'm worried about. This is my plans. That this stuff never even crosses our mind. We miss that God is using us to show himself to people, both here in a lost and hurting world and in the heavenly realms. That's crazy. And yet that is what Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to see. You have a a high calling, church. And your, and that's what we're going to get into next, your unity teaches about who God is. And that's where we're going to wrap it up here. We're going to get into uh, our communion. But Paul talks about, I mean, there's this whole chunk. You've got Jews, you've got Gentiles, and now they're going to be one group. What is that going to look like? I don't know. It's crazy. But we can figure this out. I got a story about my cat, Oliver. You guys have been to my house. My cat's crazy. And when we got him, he was even crazier. Like now, if you come over and you see him, he's, he's, like the, a, he's an old man compared to who he used to be. And one of the things he did was, it took us a long time to figure out like the food that he would eat. And here's his food bowl. Yes, I took a picture of it, and it'll become clear in a bit. So we bought this kibble. It's cat food. It's like any other cat food you would see at the store. It's got like different parts. It's got two different pieces to it. And it just comes in a big bag and you pour it in the bowl. Now if I asked my cat, Ollie, I have a job for you. I would like you to separate these two types of kibble. And into two different piles. I mean, he's a cat. He doesn't speak English. He's dumb. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't know what I'm saying. And it's a task that he, he wouldn't be able to accomplish. If I asked my kids to do it, they'd be like, that sounds like the most boring chore to separate two types of kibble. And yet, every day, this is what we pour into his bowl, and this is what we come back to find. Now, if I had asked him to separate the kibble, he wouldn't even know what that means. I hope, I hope you get what I'm about to say. But through small, simple choices of preference, he separated the kibble. He, he, just, he just sniffed one little piece and liked it and ate it. He sniffed another little piece, didn't like it, didn't eat it. And over the course of the day, He was able to separate what seemed like one bowl of kibble. Oh, no, they're they're actually not. They're actually two bowls of kibble. Through small, unconscious choices of preference, he picked one over the other, and then over over time, the ramifications of that became very obvious. But my, my question is, do we do that? 
Do we make small, seemingly insignificant choices about what we like and don't like? Preferences. This one's more comfortable. This one's less comfortable. What does that look like? It looks like we end up spending more time with the people that are like us, less time with the people that are not like us, avoiding certain topics, And what Paul was trying to say was this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were once, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. This is a communion verse. Paul is saying what Jesus did on the cross through his death is awesome because of what it did for our ability to, to take two groups and make them one group. Part of Jesus' death on the cross was to reconcile the divisions between people. One humanity, I'm doing this, I'm going to go get something in a sec. One humanity, because the hostility has been put to death. My question is, how's our hostility doing, guys? It's kind of a continuation with what we've been doing on Wednesdays. We just, we, not we here in this church, but us as humans, as people, in our country, in modern era, we love to rip each other apart. We love to find divisions and then grow those divisions. But Paul is saying that Part of the reason Jesus died was to remove that hostility. What gives us the right to keep that hostility going? Why do we think we can nullify the work of Jesus on the cross and say, actually, I appreciate what you did there, but I'm going to continue to live as though we cannot get along, and we're going to keep those two groups separate. Now, it's not Jew and Gentile. What is it now? We'll just pick something. Republican and Democrat. Rich and poor. Black and white or Indian. Old and young. We can find, all, we can find an endless number of things to divide ourselves over. Now here's... Here is where... Uh, I want to talk about the Last Supper, because this is now, this is communion. So we're jumping out of Ephesians, okay? Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them, this is the disciples, at the Last Supper, as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. 
For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is like, yep, I get it. It makes perfect sense in the world to start separating ourselves. Now, they were doing it by like strata, like class distinction. Who's going to be better? Who's going to be greater? And Jesus is like, I get it. That's what everybody does. That's perfectly normal from a worldly point of view. But we are not going to do that. Who's better? The guy at the table or the guy, you know, the guy at the head of the table or the butler? Isn't it the guy at the head of the table? But I'm the butler. Like, I'm the guy that's here to serve you. Follow my example. Now, I'm going to step over here. I got, I got something. I want to show you real quick. I brought a demonstration. My mixing bowls. All right. I love this. I'm going to open these up. This one, hopefully this doesn't turn into a disaster. This little Tupperware thing is filled with uh, flour. Flour, see it? All right. This one is filled with oats. They are very different. Now, if I mix these up, the oats are like covered in flour. You have two very different things, right? And they are like fully enmeshed. (laughs) They are fully intertwined with each other. Now, remember the kibble? Imagine if I asked someone, can you pull out all the oats and leave all the flour? Be like, I don't think you can. (laughs) That would be very hard to do. Pat, if I were going to ask you to take out all the oats, how would you do it? If you take the oats and the flour together, you put them in a sieve. The flour comes out. The oats stay behind. And it's easy. Shockingly easy to just be left with the oats without the flour. There you go. It's not hard at all. And no matter how aggressively you mix those two, you just got to sift them, and they come apart. You can do that over and over and over again. Now why... Where did that come from, Ben? Why are you saying that? Two sentences later, this is what Jesus tells his disciples. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. 
But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Any of those divisions that we have in our world today, it's just like this. Two different things. And I applaud all of us for coming together and we're, we're mixing it up. This is what we're doing here on Sunday. We're mixing them up. And yet, just like the oats and the flour, it's extremely easy to divide us again. It takes almost no effort to divide us again. And we can come back next Sunday, and we can be like, we're unified, and we're diverse. We're multiple things. We're all mixed together. And then over the course of the week, Satan's like, this is not hard. I can keep doing this. I can divide you over and over and over and over again. Now there's a solution, though. There is a way to make it so that you can never separate the oats and the flour. And that is, you make bread out of them. Throw in some water, mix it up, put it in an oven, and now those two things are now one thing. You've made the two one. And do you want to hear the craziest cool thing? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. And so, I also bought some bread. Now, it's a giant one, this is the smallest one I could get. The germaphobes in the room, I know you're not going to want to do this. You can take regular communion. But when we pray, if, if James and uh, Jacob, if when you guys come in, if you could come up here and I'm going to put half of each thing in, in your thing, okay? You're more than welcome to rip a piece of bread off of this and take that for communion. And what I love about this, and I'm sorry we came here at the beginning of COVID where we, could never, we would never do this. I've been wanting to do this for two and a half years. What I love about this is that it demonstrates Jesus' body, which was broken. Jesus on, at the Last Supper was like, this is my body. And he broke it. But when you look at it, you cannot separate the parts. It is, they are fully unified. Why? Because they, are, they have been transformed. It's not flour and oats or barley or millet or whatever. It's, it's now a new thing. Something brand new has been made that wasn't there before. It's not, it can't go back to that. And so you can break the bread. And this is Jesus and this is us. And that's beautiful. And so that's, that's what I think about every single communion. That we are like the ingredients. We are no longer ingredients in the body. We have been transformed and we should live 
transformed life. Through Christ, we are supposed to be transformed from our ingredients into a new and unified body. The church is the loaf where we who are many become one. My question is, have I been transformed or am I still so easily siftable? Which is not a word, I know. Am I still easily siftable? How can I show people here and creatures in the spiritual realm that God's manifold wisdom is still at work? He is still forming that new humanity. He is still making peace. He is still reconciling people. And he is still removing hostility. And with that, I'm going to pray and we will take communion. God, thank you so much for Jesus, for his death on the cross that honestly did more than we will ever be able to fathom. His work on the cross, we won't